One of the things that has always motivated me is that I do not want to live with regrets. I hear so many people tell me, oh, it's so great what you did. I wish I could have done it. Well, you didn't. And now here we are having this conversation. It's better to say that you did it. Maybe it didn't work out, but you tried. Maybe you did it for six months to a year. Six months to a year goes by in the blink of an eye. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. This podcast centers Black women while also exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness Wellness meaning financial, professional, mental, physical, emotional, or spiritual. I'm your host, Christine Job, and I am a Black American woman currently living and thriving here in Spain. And I am not only the host, but I am also the creator, the producer, the editor, and the everythinger of this here podcast. And I have so many great hopes for this podcast and taking it into 2021, but I do need all of you to support this podcast. And there are six ways for you to support Flourish in the Foreign. The first way to support Flourish in the Foreign is by becoming a Patreon supporter of the podcast. You can do so at www.patreon.com slash flourishforeign. The second way to support this podcast is by cash apping the podcast at dollar sign flourish foreign and cash app is a really great way to support the podcast because it doesn't require a monthly commitment. It's basically a tip jar so you can tip the podcast for every episode that you're enjoying. You can tip as few as $1 to as many as however many dollars you want per episode that you really enjoy. And shout out to my auntie Kathy who cash out the podcast this week. I appreciate you so, so much. And you too can support the podcast via Cash App. Just go ahead and cash up the podcast at dollar sign flourish foreign. The third way to support flourish in the foreign is by purchasing an item off of our Amazon wish list. I've created an Amazon wish list full of equipment that the podcast needs to upgrade the production of the podcast and production not only of audio portion of the podcast, but also some of the video components that go along with this podcast via the YouTube channel, but also the Instagram lives that I do. So if you'd like to contribute to the production of this here podcast, definitely check out the Amazon wish list and purchase something for the podcast. It's greatly appreciated. The fourth way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is by placing an ad or sponsoring an entire episode of the podcast. If you have a business or an organization that is in alignment with this podcast and you'd like to get in front of an audience of just truly engaged and wonderful Black women and people who are just internationally minded and ambitious, you definitely want to place an ad within this podcast. 
simply go to www.flourishintheforeign.com contact and drop me a line and I will send you over the rate sheet. The fifth way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is, of course, by making sure you are following the podcast across all social media channels at Flourish Foreign. That's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And also be sure to share the podcast with your friends, your family, anyone that you think would be interested, and of course, across your social media network. It is so, so important, and I greatly appreciate it. The sixth way to support Flourish in the Foreign is, of course, making sure that you are subscribed to the podcast, that you've rated the podcast five stars across any podcast platform you're listening on, and you are leaving a review for the podcast. I love the reviews. They really, really make my day. And I'm going to continue this week by reading another review. Today's review comes from International Trekker. And International Trekker says, From Chicago roots to world, Nyana's story was insightful. It resonated with me in many ways. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for writing that review, International Trekker. If you guys know... Nyana's story was our very first episode, and if you haven't listened to it, definitely go ahead and do that. It is a fan favorite, and it really kicked off the podcast in such a powerful, powerful way. I've just given you all six ways to support Flourish in the Foreign, and I hope that you have chosen at least one way to support this podcast today. On to the next episode. This week's episode, I have Chloe, and Chloe's story is fantastic. It is so fantastic that we recorded for about three hours, maybe a little bit more. And so editing it down was definitely a struggle because it was a really amazing episode. I'm going to try to compile the rest of the conversation into a bonus episode in the coming weeks and months, so definitely look out for that. But Chloe's conversation with me was just so incredible because she has really lived all around the world and living all around the world has interestingly affected her outlook on life in some ways and not so much in other ways. But I'm going to let her tell you all about it. My name is Chloe Brown. I'm 33. I'm from London originally, and I'm currently living in Barcelona. I grew up in London. My parents are both Caribbean. My mum is from Guyana and my dad is from Jamaica. I'm from South London, around the area of Brixton, Herne Hill, Stratham. For anyone who knows London, knows the cultural significance of that, they're very Caribbean areas. I didn't grow up uh, rich. I didn't grow up knowing I was poor. My mom was very good covering those cracks, but I know that she struggled for sure. And she worked very, very hard to get where she is today. And what she decided from a very young age, because she had me young, was to give me a lot of the things that she wanted but could never have. That might be at the sacrifice of other things. So if I wanted expensive trainers, if I wanted 
expensive clothes or toys, etc. She wanted me to have experiences. One of the things that she was very clear about, regardless of whatever was happening, was that we would go on holiday every year. In Europe, that's a lot easier because obviously we have lots of countries very close and we have lots of budget airlines. I did go to the Caribbean quite a bit and we traveled Europe quite a lot, went to America a few times, but she made that her priority. I asked Chloe to tell me about her university experience and if she had the opportunity to study abroad. I went to university in Manchester, which is a different city in the north of Uh, the UK. It's very common in the UK for people to leave their home city to go to university. It's not that far, it's about two hours on the train. Even though I was in a different city, most of my friends were from London, all of them were of ethnic background. I didn't make much effort to go out and discover new things in my first two years of university. I kept to what I knew in terms of culture and music. I did a degree in French studies which involved three years at the university in England and one mandatory year in France or a French-speaking country to study. And then when I was around 19, so like my second year of university, I started my first serious relationship. I fell in love. And honestly, I could say that if it wasn't for the fact that my third year at university was compulsory and if I didn't go to France, I would have failed my degree, I probably would have opted out just from the thought of it was scary going into something new. I didn't really do much research into where I was going. I just met this guy, I was head over heels, I wanted to spend every waking moment with him. If it wasn't for the fact that it was compulsory, I probably wouldn't have gone. But it was, and I got there, and it was a complete shock. I was living in Lyon. It varies between the second and third biggest city in France. It's between Lyon and Marseille after Paris. So relatively multicultural. That year for me was one of the most formative years of my life in many, many respects. So on one hand, it was amazing. France was amazing for me in terms of my personal development. I was no longer around these people that were all similar to me. I was forced into a situation where I had to meet different kinds of people and make different kinds of friends. And I made two particular friends that are actually still my friends today. And we travel a lot together. One, I would say, is my first real white friend. I can honestly say that I didn't really have a close white friend before her. And then the other person in our little trio was a black woman from the UK too, but she wasn't from London. She's from the north of the UK, from a very small place. And that was my first time meeting another black person who had a completely different life experience to me in terms of being an ethnic minority in the UK and being from London is quite a privilege because you have access to so many different kinds of people who are like you. And you have access to many other different kinds of people. So you learn a lot about other cultures and how other people live. And nothing's really new. You try different foods about people's religions, about their cultural practices. 
she grew up somewhere where her family were the only black family where she lived. I think she was the only black person in her school, maybe with a few other Asians. Her experience of being black and the things that she was into in terms of music and the things that she liked to do and where she liked to go out was very different to the people that I knew from home. This concept of what it means to be black is very different for other people. That was a very eye-opening experience for me. I did so many things in general with these girls and with other people that I'd never done before. I backpacked with them around Europe. I hiked. I visited clubs that I never thought I would visit, listened to different types of music, was a bit more open-minded about that. And just generally did things that weren't imaginable before I left the UK. And I have my friends in the UK sort of looking at me like, what are you doing? Like, black people don't hike. Where are you going? Why are you backpacking? And it definitely created a bit of a shift in those friendships that I had in the UK because I was off developing into something new. I suppose you could say transitioning if you like. And the people that I knew at home were kind of staying static. That, not that that's a bad thing. They were very happy in their lives. It's just that I was becoming a different person. On the flip side of that, my experience in France taught me so much about racism. I had never really experienced huge amounts of racism in my life before that. Little microaggressions in the UK. People say stuff and people might touch your hair or... I was one of two black girls on my course in university and they thought we were the same person, for example, even though we look completely different. Little things like that, but I'd never had anything overt hatred to my face. And France was the country that taught me about that. It was almost on a daily basis, to be honest. I believe that one of the reasons why I personally had a lot of issues in France is because I was mistaken for a Martinican. Martinique is a French Caribbean island. And yes, I look very typically like the people from there. I mean, I look Caribbean. I could be from anywhere, but that's what they, they associated me with being Martinican. I had issues at university. I had issues with my grades. I did a group project with a group of three other white women. We were obviously supposed to get the same mark. I was marked lower for no apparent reason. It was insinuated that my Afro had something to do with it. I would have issues with the police. I made a few Congolese friends while I was there and we would go out and we'd get stopped by the police and asked for our papers all the time. They're born French, but they were being treated like they were immigrants. As soon as it was realized I'm English, then it would be like, oh, that's, that's fine. But why are you hanging out with these guys? We wouldn't get into places. People would treat you a different way in shops. This was a truly eye-opening experience for me. And it was, I would say it's also the year that developed me as a black woman in terms of who I am as a black woman surrounded by non-black people and what is my strength in that. And that's the year that I decided 
to go natural. I think in my militancy against this racism, I used to wear my hair straight all the time and that was the year I decided to go natural and have never looked back since. Chloe shared with me that her thesis in university was on negritude, which definitely has a profound impact on where she decides to go after university. I started my thesis on a theory called Negritude, which is a black conscious movement that uh, was created in France by a man from Martinique, a man from French Guyane, and a man from Senegal. I think in my final year, I definitely was becoming more conscious of who I am and starting to research more about African history and African consciousness and being more aware of who I was as a black woman, as a minority in the UK. And I, the fi- your final year at university, I'm sure it's the same for everybody. They really start to home into you about what you're going to do post-university, jobs, there's career fairs, there's career talks, all sorts of things. And I was sort of attending them very half-heartedly. I was graduating the year the recession really hit home. And it was becoming increasingly difficult to actually find jobs. And I had friends that were being offered jobs and then having them taken away because the company just couldn't just couldn't pay for them. That pushed me to look into other options. And as I mentioned, I was doing my thesis on this subject and the main person I was looking at was the man from Martinique. And for anybody who doesn't know, Martinique is in the Caribbean, but it's actually part of France. It's technically Europe in the Caribbean. There's an opportunity to apply to be a teacher in France, but that means that you can be a teacher in Martinique because it equates as the same thing. My tutor gave me the option and just said, have you ever, you know, thought about going, um, seeing as you're doing your dissertation on this subject? And I applied. I didn't know if I was going to get it. I secretly didn't apply for any jobs in the UK didn't tell my mum that but I kind of had all my hopes on this and didn't know what I was going to do if it didn't plan out but it did pan out I was offered the opportunity I think because I had already been in France they thought I'd be able to handle going somewhere like Martinique and the initial plan was to go with my then boyfriend He then backed out because he was offered a semi-professional football contract. And I made a very bold decision that I was going to go anyway. It's what I wanted. I wasn't going to give up my dream for him. And we decided that we would just do long distance. And I left. Going to Martinique, I was extremely naive. I was caught up in this euphoria of completing my dissertation and studying this man. His name is, he's an incredible man, uh, a poet. Some have called him the Black Shakespeare. He was an incredible politician for Martinique. And he just has such a great influence in the literary world. I went with this idea for some insane reason that Martinique was just going to be this paradise of Amy Césaire and everyone's going to be caught up in his, in his rhetoric and 
in his being basically he'd only died uh, a few months before i'd left actually to go to martinique he wasn't someone from the past he was very much present in in martinican life just before i had arrived and i got there and it was it wasn't like that at all <laughs> they barely they know who he is from his politics side but they don't really they don't really study him they there's not many people that know much about his work and essentially what he did for martinique politically they just know the basics that he was the the kind of mayor if you like the equivalent that was disappointing and then i get there and i'm essentially in france it was very bizarre my parents are from the english caribbean and we're very very proud of being independent nationalism is such a huge thing in these islands we fly our flag at any given opportunity we take our flags to parties and they tell us fly your flag where are you from being in this space that looks like the caribbean sea sun sand mountains as well food breadfruit trees mango trees etc but is quintessentially France. You have boulangeries everywhere. It's the euro that they pay in. It's very quiet. People are very calm. The English Caribbean is music's playing all the time. People are very rowdy. People are very, very loud. And these people are in Martinique. They're at home by seven o'clock watching TV. And I found that very bizarre and difficult too, because Martinique. Guadeloupe, French Guyana and La Union, they're known as departements. So, so France is, is divided into regions which are known as departements. These places are just extensions of departements in France. In my opinion, this may be controversial, that's just a nice name for a colony. To be from places that are very proud of independence to going to a Caribbean island that's essentially a colony it's quite sad. And some people, their mentality around it was quite sad. I'd had an experience in France where they had mistaken me for a Martinican and they did not treat me as an equal. And I get to Martinique and I'm surrounded by Martinicans who insist to me, we're French and we're equal to them and they see us as equals. And I just found that so sad because from my experience it just wasn't the case you do have I did meet quite a few Martinicans who are very proud to be Caribbean and quite anti-France and some are pro-independence there's a little pro-independence movement there but it's quite muted because obviously they have a lot of benefits being French in terms of social security and healthcare, etc but there's a little rumbling here and there but it, it was a very bizarre experience is, is the best way that I can explain it. Because, again, I was very naive and I didn't research it properly. And I, I just heard Caribbean and I was like, great, I'm going to the Caribbean. And it's going to be this amazing experience of not only learning more about Amy Césaire, but being with my people. And, yeah, they speak another language, but it will just be the same. And it wasn't. It wasn't at all. I found it quite boring in terms of people aren't lively there's not so much to do in terms of going out it's very beautiful the 
beach life is amazing and I was basically a, a teaching assistant. I worked 12 hours a week and uh, that's really nothing. I spent a lot of my time on the beach and enjoying the nature and going on walks and visiting various places. I was in Martinique for a year teaching, but by the time I'd got to six months in Martinique, I just thought, what's the point in going home? The recession hadn't got any better. After an eye-opening and perhaps a little disappointing experience in Martinique, Chloe decides to return to her mother's home country. Initially, what I did is I decided that I wanted to learn Spanish and started applying for teaching jobs in South America. And I had got a, a job in Chile. What I decided to do at that point was travel from Martinique to Guyana, visit Guyana for a little while, and then make my way down South America into Chile. Looking back on it now, I have no idea how I planned to do that because I did not have the funds to take on that endeavor and I made no plans. So things work out the way they're supposed to work out. I got to Guyana and my grandmother had died about a year and a half previous to that. And when I arrived, there were issues with her estate and there was no one from our family to stay and rectify the situation and represent the family. In the end, my mom said to me, will you stay and sort this out? And like I said, I actually didn't really have a plan or the funds to get down to Chile. That It was a ridiculous idea anyway. I said yes, and that turned into 14 months in Guyana. And I stayed in my grandmother's house. I got a job in exportation, and I was teaching Venezuelans English who had come over to Guyana to find work. And I developed a life for myself in Guyana. I wasn't relying on any family whatsoever. Nobody could tell me what to do. And it was a really, really great year for me. I always had quite a difficult relationship with my grandmother. And being there, I, I got to understand what kind of woman she was and why she was the way she was and why we had so many difficulties. I got to know the, the sort of administrative side to Guyana, which anybody knows living in, in a third world country is quite difficult because I was selling our house at the time. I got to see a different dynamic to it that I would never have previously had just going on holiday, which has given me a lot of insight into what I need to do if I ever want to live there in the future. It gave me skills in general. I was 23 at the time and I was selling a house by myself. I had no clue what I was doing. That was an education and it was just great. After living and really growing up in Guyana, Chloe decides that she's not done living abroad and that she still wants to go and see the world. And so now she is off to a very unexpected next location. There is a uh, national charity in the UK called the British Council, whose primary interests are to promote, I guess you could say, British culture around the world, whether that be 
literature, theatre, etc. And one of the ways that they do that is they send teaching assistants abroad. While I was in Guyana, I applied to be a teaching assistant with the British Council in China. And I got the job. And that was becoming a bit worrying when I got the job because I hadn't yet sold the house in Guyana. But I made it very clear to my family that I had given up my Spanish year for them and I wasn't prepared to give up this year, regardless I was going to go. Luckily, the house sold about six weeks before I was due to leave Guyana. And I worked really, really quickly to get everything done and everything set up before I left so that everything was taken care of for my family. I think I spent two weeks in the UK before I traveled to China. And um, just adding here that I was still with this guy. I was still maintaining this long-term relationship and he was very supportive and it was just working for us long distance. Again, I didn't really do my research. I mean, the British Council, they did give us a lot of material and they gave us these books to learn basic Mandarin. Didn't read any of them. Didn't read any of the material. Took the flight and I had to do a two-week training course in Beijing which is a requirement to get your visa to teach in China. On this program there's over a hundred people and we all do this course together in Beijing and then we're all assigned to different cities around China and then we all go our separate ways. So I'm two weeks in Beijing with these strangers who very quickly become very good friends, particularly the people that I'm going to go to the same city as. The city I was assigned to was Tianjin, which is a 30 minutes train ride away from Beijing. And we quickly become very, very good friends. I have the most amazing two weeks of my life. I've met so many people who have told me that they've never been that interested in visiting China. And that has really surprised me. Even when I went, normally when you have a friend going abroad, it's an opportunity to go and visit. And I would say to my friends, like, yeah, like, make sure you come and visit. And people would say to me, no, China's never been on my list. And I guarantee you, two weeks in Beijing, you will have the most amount of fun you've ever had. There's so much to do. There's so much to see. It's cheap. It's interesting. Honestly, you'd have the best time of your life. And we did. Mixed in with doing this course, we had a lot of cultural excursions. None of us spoke the language, bar maybe one who had intermediate level. And uh, you got to remember that this was only 2010, okay? There was no smartphones. There's no translate. There's not even Google Maps to get anywhere. There's nothing. Like We're doing this literally just carrying around books and trying our best to say, can I have a bottle of water, for example. After the two weeks in Beijing, I go off to the city that I'm assigned to. And there's two people to a school and you live with your colleague. They give you a flat to share and, and then you get on. China was a very surreal experience. I always say it's like living on a different planet. You can live in many different places. You can live in Europe, wherever, and 
the culture may be different to where you're from, but there are things that are similar. There are things that are different. There are things that you hate. There are things that you love, but ultimately you can get on and you can assimilate. China is not like that at all. It's opposite of everything we know. The people are so different to us from their cultural values to what they perceive to be respectful, what they perceive to be disrespectful, how they communicate with each other, how they socialize with each other. Their politics, obviously, is uh, quite difficult to navigate because you have to be very, very careful what you say in China. When we did our course in Beijing, we had a meeting with the police chief of Beijing and he gave us a list of do's and don'ts and he made it very clear to us that we are not to state anything about our political views, our religious views. They're not interested and if we dare to try and influence anybody, there would be consequences. You can't have, even within yourselves, even if you're, if you're out with a, a fellow foreign friend, you need to be careful about what you're saying about China if you disagree with anything. They, they put a lot of spies around you, whether that be in your classroom or whether that just be randomly walking around. They don't call them spies, obviously. They're, they're party representatives and it's a position of honor. But essentially, they're there to spy on you. And they're there to spy on other people as well, other Chinese people, to make sure that they're all doing what they're supposed to do. But you have to be on your guard a lot. And the way of working is very different. You do work more hours. You get paid absolutely nothing, at least with the British Council. They tell you that you're not there for the money, you're there for the experience. One thing that's difficult about one not one thing there's many things that are difficult about China but one of the main things is that you can never assimilate they always make you feel other I don't think you could live there for 40 years and not feel other because they really don't have any access to a lot of different people and there's a lot of propaganda about foreigners as well to make them feel that the way their system is run is the best possible way. So there is a lot of miscommunication about how people live in the West. London was often compared to the early industrial revolution times, for example, or I was once asked if I knew how to waltz, which obviously I don't. And they were completely shocked that I don't. There's a lot of miscommunication about foreigners and when they see you, they don't feel that it's rude to stare. They don't have this boundary of personal space. They will come up to you and they will touch you, touch your skin and touch your hair and maybe look in your bag if you've got shopping to see what is the foreigner eating. So that can be quite frustrating it's amusing at first but once you've been there for quite a long time and then it's the same people that you see every day doing this on a daily basis it becomes very tiring one thing that I would say is for me personally I didn't feel that 
I didn't feel picked out because of my race. I was the only black person. My white colleagues got the same treatment. If, especially if they were blonde, blue-eyed, they got a lot of attention, a lot of touching. I do know, and I am aware that there is a lot of racism in China, but I can just say from my experience, when that was happening to me, that wasn't the case. I did have a case at work where something was said to me by my boss that was very racist when I was questioning why there was material on comparing black people to monkeys. It was said very casually. And when I obviously challenged it, I was met with amusement in terms of what's your problem? This is how it is, isn't it? And that just became too problematic for me. I decided to leave that school and I went to work for a private American run school. I was in China for a year. I did incredible things, things that I never thought I would do. They give you a really long break around Chinese New Year. Me and my friends backpacked around the um, East Coast down to Hong Kong for actual Chinese New Year and then went a little bit across to the West. I even went to a rave on the Great Wall of China, which is something I never thought I would do. It, was a, it wasn't music that I particularly enjoy, but it was just an experience. Who can say they went to a rave on the Great Wall of China? But would I do it again? No. As great as it was, it was too stressful dealing with how different it was and dealing with the cultural things that we deem to be unacceptable. Once I finished in China, my friend and I, we backpacked around Southeast Asia for about two months. And then I got home. Chloe returned to the UK after her stint in China. And she is still quite anxious to learn Spanish. And so she figures out a way to head off to Spain. I'm at home. I'm still with my then boyfriend. I'm wondering what's next. Do I really want to stay in the UK? Not really. I'd missed out on this Spanish year by staying in, in Guyana. I still really wanted to do that. I didn't want to you know, stay in London and regret not learning Spanish and regret not having that Spanish year. I decided to apply for teaching jobs in Spain. At this point, I'm actually uh, qualified because of the, the course that I did in China. That gave me more options in terms of private language schools. I didn't have to go as a teaching assistant. And I found a job in the north of Spain in a city called Santander, which is in the region of Cantabria. I purposefully chose not to come to Barcelona or Madrid or Valencia or Seville, places like that, that have a huge international student population and a huge expat population, because I knew that if I did, I wouldn't learn Spanish. People often ask me, why would you choose to go to Santander? But that was the main reason. And once again, I did not research. I didn't do the things that you're supposed to do when you move abroad. And I just turned up in Santander, didn't speak a word of Spanish. 
and had no idea what I was supposed to do administration wise but I was very very lucky because I already had this job and they sorted out everything for me I found a place really quickly I already had a source of income I just got on with teaching and Santander is beautiful it's really small you can definitely cross it in an afternoon it's got amazing beaches you can see amazing mountain ranges and they've got wonderful viewpoints the downside is the weather and that was something that surprised me because I did not research Santander before I got there it rains a lot it rains a lot the north of Spain is very green because it rains a lot that's what makes it so beautiful and people would often say to me oh haha it's just like London no it's not it's much worse than London I would equate it to more being in Ireland and there's actually quite a lot of Irish people there maybe they're there because it's uh, so similar to their hometowns I'm not sure but it rains a lot you don't often get to to make the most of the beaches they do have really nice summers but it's not like Mediterranean Spain and uh, I really loved it. People were friendly. I got by because I spoke French and I just sort of added O's to the end of words. And people were really helpful if I didn't understand. And that was a very stark contrast to being in France. Because in France, if you don't speak French perfectly, French people do not want to speak to you. Like, how dare you bastardize their language? by ruining it with your mistakes. You feel quite self-conscious when you speak French. Whereas here, people are very friendly and very willing to help. My job was initially a contract for one year. I actually quit that job because my manager was not a very nice person. And my mum said to me, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna come home? And I was like, no, I'm not gonna come home. I love it here, I'm just gonna make it work. I started putting adverts out for private teaching it was during the recession and the recession in Spain was still pretty full on. People were very keen to learn English, to leave basically, to go and get jobs elsewhere. And it's not like being in Madrid or Barcelona where everyone speaks English or you can go to a restaurant and get a menu in English. It's not as accessible. As an English teacher there, you're, it's high commodity really. And I made very good money, developed a network of students for myself. After my first year, I decided, why not stay another year? I'm making good money. I love where I live. I'm learning the language and it's great. I, I made this decision in summer while I was lying on the beach. The following January, when it rained for the whole month, I wasn't happy about the decision that I made. But I have nothing bad to say about Santander except for the lack of diversity because it's a small city in the north of Spain. The only other black people I would see would be refugees. There was nothing akin to anything that I personally liked in terms of going out, music, etc. But I've got used to that because living in the amount of places that I have, particularly China and France, I was used to not really getting what I usually like. Fed up with teaching. Chloe decides to return to the UK, and although she returned, she definitely doesn't have plans to stay. Towards the end of the second year, 
it was becoming very clear to me that I hate teaching. I've always known that. I've only ever been a teacher because it afforded me the possibilities to travel. I've never got into this because I like teaching, but it was becoming too repetitive and unbearable. I knew after it had been five years now I had been a teacher, it was time for a change. I decided to go home after my second year. I always had the intention of coming back to Spain. I always wanted to come to Barcelona. I couldn't make the career change that I wanted in Santander because Santander is just too small. And then there was the issue that I was still in this relationship. I still wanted to be with this person. I discussed going home with the intention of always coming back to Spain with that person. I always knew that Barcelona was the top of my list because to me, Barcelona is a combination of what I want. I love the beach, but I'm from London and I love being in a very cosmopolitan, fast moving city. And Barcelona was a great combination of those two. My idea was to go home, figure out how I was going to make this change and then make my way back. I went home to London. I changed my career to PR, which is what I've always wanted to do. I kept my LinkedIn searches around Barcelona and Spain to see what was going on and see if there was anything I could apply for. But I just got caught up and it's easy to do in a city like London. It's fast paced. It's such a rat race and you lose yourself within that. And what I thought was potentially just going to be a year ended up being uh, four years. And like all this time throughout this whole this whole period of this four years, I'm still, you know, looking at jobs in Barcelona and applying for the odd one or two and just seeing what's out there and discussing it with my partner at the time about the potential of moving back. And I was always unhappy living in London for those four years. The, the quality of life is just not comparable. The weather, the food, the socializing, the work-life balance, that's just not what London is about. London is about everyone's hustling to improve in their careers and get their mortgages. And the weather's too rubbish to be out all the time. If you're going to make plans with people, it's generally like a week in advance. It's big to travel around. Your commute is about an hour if you're lucky. If you have a friend in the other side of London, it takes you two, two and a half hours to visit that person. London is just too overwhelming. And I think as well, because I always knew that I didn't want to stay, it just, my, my well-being was being affected severely. I'm in a really great job in London, exactly what I want to be doing, but I hate it. I hate it. I hate my life there. My relationship was starting to break down. And then ultimately my relationship ended. And I just thought, right, that's it. Screw all this. I'm leaving. And I made that decision in the November. I finished my job in the February and I came here beginning of the April. 
again, and I feel like this is a recurrent theme in this chat, I didn't research. To give myself a bit of an excuse, I wasn't in a place mentally to research. I literally just wanted to run away. I wasn't happy with my life. I was in this really terrible breakup and I just wanted to run away. But I didn't research jobs. I didn't research where to live. I did nothing. I asked Chloe, what was it like finally moving to Barcelona, but moving to Barcelona single and unexpectedly so? My saving grace was that I have a really good friend from Barcelona. He was living in London at the time. We worked together and his parents live in Barcelona or just outside the city. And I've met them before, lovely people. And they offered uh, me a place to stay until I sort myself out. Now I've been living in Barcelona for two years. I work here. I'm a, a PR manager here and I have a great life here. My work-life balance is really, really good. My social life is great. And I feel like I've scratched that itch that I've always had to come and live in Barcelona. I knew that if I didn't do this, I would always regret it. I asked Chloe to describe the varying work cultures she has had the opportunity to experience as she's lived and worked around the world. Well, the work culture in in all the different countries I've lived in is very different to the UK. I would have to say that the UK does have very good employment laws. To come out of that can be difficult. For example, in Europe, you have to put your picture on your CV, which is unthinkable in the UK because it clearly invites discrimination. And it does. As much as Europeans pretend that it doesn't, it does. I've heard various stories of people saying, oh, you've got the job because uh, I really liked your face. Or I myself have not gotten a job in Spain because they've said, yeah, we couldn't really see a black person in this position. Then there's things like holiday. The UK is brilliant for holiday, not so much in other countries. In China, we barely got any holiday. I mean, I'd, they, I mean fair enough, they don't celebrate Christmas, but they didn't even want to recognize the fact that we as foreigners do. We just happened to be lucky that Christmas Day fell on a Saturday. Otherwise, we would have had to work, which would have been terrible. We did get holiday for Chinese New Year, which we were able to travel for. But otherwise, no. And Spain, there's less holiday. And then there's the level of protection that you get in terms of HR policies and if anything happens to you, discrimination, etc. The UK can be very corporate for that, which other countries not so much. But I had this time at my school in China in when I was working for the British Council, when our head teacher came to me and my colleague, my other English colleague, and said, yeah, this month we just, we can't pay you. And we were like, what? What do you mean? Like, not pay us today? Like, pay us next week? And he was like, no. And just very casual, as if, yeah, maybe next month. And we were like, no, 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 no. That's not the way this works. We have a contract with the British Council, which states that, and he was like, what contract? That contract has nothing to do with us. And we had to literally fight tooth and nail 
to get our pay for that month. And I could not imagine anything like that happening in in the UK. In the UK, it's very difficult to sack people. There is There are procedures in place. You have to go through disciplinaries. You have to get warnings, et cetera, et cetera. You cannot just get fired on the same day, which you can do in other countries. Now that I'm older, I'm looking at other policies as well. So not that I'm in any position to be thinking about having children at the moment, but I recently learned that Spain only has four months maternity leave, which is insane to me. In the UK, you can take up to a year. Fair enough, you might not get you know all the money that you need, but the option is there if you need it. And here they give you like four months. What are you supposed to do in four months? Chloe was dating her ex for years, years and years, long distance. But then she finds herself single in Barcelona. So I asked Chloe first, how did her and her ex even maintain this long distance relationship for so long? And then I asked her, how was dating in Barcelona? I was in a relationship for 11 years, very, very long time. I started dating this person when I was 19. If you asked me if long distance relationships work, I would tell you no, because every other long distance relationship that I've seen has not worked. It just worked for us and I see it as a fluke, to be honest. The main reason why it worked for us is because he didn't put any pressure on me and he allowed me to be me and do what I'm doing. Every year I had this contract and I would return home and get a new one. And I would always say to him, if this is not what you want, then we can end this. However, I'm not going to give up my dreams for you. I love you, but I'm not going to give up my dreams for you. This is something that I want to do. And he was supportive of that. And then when I was in those countries, there was no pressure in terms of we have to Skype each other at seven o'clock every day. And if you're not there, it's going to cause an argument and and why aren't you contacting me more why aren't you putting more effort we didn't have any of that it literally was we'll talk when we can which tended to be most days but if we couldn't we couldn't and we understood he understood if i had if i was off out doing something i understood on his part we made efforts when we could speak to each other what i saw from other couples was that there was a lot of pressure on it. And there were arguments caused because you didn't get on Skype at seven o'clock when you said you would. And what does that mean? Who are you with? Which ultimately led to all those relationships breaking down. Every, Like I said, every other long distance relationship that I saw with people that I was traveling with or living with, they didn't last. And it just did for us. And the only thing that I can attribute it to is because there was no pressure on it. He always came to visit. I definitely opened the scope for his travel. 
because he was one of those people uh, who didn't really travel much through his childhood. And then when I got home, the idea was for us to, to come to Barcelona together. The issues arise was that what I realized is that ultimately he didn't want to leave the UK. He was very much attached to it and he hadn't really been honest with his feelings about leaving the UK. And I knew that I couldn't stay for him and be miserable. And there were many other issues as well, but that that was part of it. And ultimately, I think through through me traveling and doing various things and wanting certain things because of my travels, we became very different people. Really, I always say that the problems arise when we were actually living in the same country, not when we weren't. And then, yeah, I came to Barcelona single and wow, what a trip. Initially, I was in no space to be dating. I was getting over this very long-term relationship that had really defined me as an adult and I had to discover myself first because even though I had gone off and done all these things and lived my dreams, I was still part of that unit and I didn't know myself as an individual. I only knew myself as part of that unit and I had to learn what it was for me to be an individual before I could even think about dating. And then once I started, you got to remember the last time I was single, I was 19. Internet apps and everything, it wasn't a thing. Now everyone, and particularly in Barcelona, it's all about the apps and I cannot get my head around it at all. It feels superficial. It feels like you're going shopping and it takes away that layer of getting to know someone before you write them off because like I always say like my my ex I wasn't particularly attracted to him when we first met but I got to know him and that grew and these apps take away that opportunity and you could be missing out on someone really great because you're superficially swiping away And I just, honestly, I'm still in a stage of trying to understand and navigate this landscape and trying to understand if it's even something I really want to be a part of. Because so far, my experience of it has been negative. I'm not particularly open to it. I definitely prefer the old school way of just meeting someone and talking to them. Maybe I'm too old for it, I don't know. But it's it's not been easy because I've been very resistant to this app lifestyle, for sure. And then there's the element of I've never dated outside my race. Am I open to it? I'm still trying to figure that out, to be honest. I want to try to be open to it and I want to attempt because I don't like to write things off without even trying but I'm conflicted because I've always seen myself with a black man I've always seen my kids as being black 
I've always seen myself raising my kids within my culture and not having anything to conflict with that because I'm very proud of who I am culturally. My kids will definitely be proud of who they are culturally. And I don't know if I'm open enough to introduce another culture into that. Barcelona is not somewhere where there is an abundance of black men. There's hardly any, to be honest. Many, the ones that are here, tend to be in interracial relationships. I haven't just heard this from black women. I've heard this from women in general, that dating in Barcelona is terrible. And the app culture is terrible. And it it has made, the the general opinion is that it has really converted men into betas. That's going to be a controversial statement to say, but I'm saying it because they no longer have the confidence to come up to you and talk to you. They'll look at you and then search for you on an app. Why wouldn't you come and just talk to, talk to me? Or they have an inflated level of self-confidence because they're behind a keyboard, behind a screen. And some of these men, the things that they're saying, you're like, I don't know if you're on a level to be acting this way. It's, it's created a very confused culture as far as I'm concerned, and I don't like it at all. I don't like it. I asked Chloe to give you all some advice if you're thinking about going abroad and perhaps you might be a little hesitant about taking the leap. One of the things that has always motivated me is that I do not want to live with regrets. I hear so many people tell me, oh, it's great what you did. I wish I could have done it. Well, you didn't. And now here we are having this conversation. It's better to say that you did it. Maybe it didn't work out, but you tried. Maybe you did it for six months to a year. Six months to a year goes by in the blink of an eye. Okay, it will not take anything out of the linear trajectory of your life if you have a plan about your career moves or your family moves, etc. It will not, one year will not affect that. If you give yourself that timeline, because realistically, that's how much you need. It takes, I won't lie, it takes a while to come to a place and settle. It's unrealistic to say that you get here and everything is great. That's not the way it is at all. You have to be prepared for that. You have to navigate the difference in the administrative systems. You have to navigate the differences in the employment systems. You don't come with friends. You are opening yourself up to meeting new people. You might not meet your best friend straight away. That could take time. And the way adults meet people is very different. Children gravitate to each other straight away. We don't, we tend not to do that. We definitely have more inhibitions with that. Be open to the fact that it will take you a good amount of time to get settled. And once you do, that's when you can decide, mm, I like this or mm, I don't like this. And if you don't like it, at least you did your absolute best to make that dream happen. Because the last thing you want, I, I can't think of anything worse in life 
than being, I don't know, retirement age and looking back and thinking, I wish I had done that. I wish I had gone there. I wish I'd taken advantage of that situation. Like that to me is my worst nightmare. Also, you, you won't be alone. You will find other women, other people going through the same situation as you. And things like this, this podcast, and we're very fortunate enough to have a lot of material online now where you can connect with those other people and share in those experiences and get comfort in maybe some of the experiences that aren't going well, share the experiences that are going great and create a community for yourself in that way. But the only thing the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to enrich your mind. And is that such a bad thing? Never. Anyone who's hesitant to do it, I would encourage you with every fiber of my being to take that step and do it because it is worth it. And if it doesn't work out, you go home and you continue or you move on to the next. That's the great thing about life. I asked Chloe what her definition of wellness is and how living abroad had influenced that definition of wellness. And I have to say, her response to this question brings out something that hasn't really been discussed in this kind of context on the podcast, which is community and the need to have community to be fully well. Once you live abroad, and you see what else is out there, your opinion changes for sure, especially if you're open to it. And definitely what's happened for me is that my definition of wellness has become my work-life balance. I definitely want to have a good career and be well-paid, okay? And, and even if that's starting something on my own or working for someone else, etc. However, my life comes first. And that's just not possible for me in London. And it wasn't possible for me in London. My life in London, when I went back after living abroad for so long, was work, 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 work. I was definitely working over my contracted hours, then gym, then trying to fit in time to see my boyfriend trying to fit in time to see my family it felt like I was scheduling appointments with friends to get the odd meal in or the odd drink in that's what my life felt like and that is not how I want to live Spain you don't come to Spain for the money if anybody's thinking of coming here to have a really good job and really good salary unless your contract is out of Spain that's not really going to happen for you you, you come to Spain when you make the choice of your personal life over your professional. And that for me has definitely been cultivated from living abroad and seeing how much quality of life is much more important to people and much better in other countries, in other environments. And my quality of life in Spain is much better than it could be in the UK. However, what is changing for me now is understanding that my wellness integrates my my race, my blackness and what I need as a black woman. I'm at a stage now where I'm becoming conflicted about that. 
because I'm particularly in these past few weeks, it has come to a head in the way that I've been thinking about it with everything that's happened with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. Living in somewhere like London, culturally, I have access to everything. I have access to my people and a certain type of rhetoric that's in tune with how I think and how I feel, which I don't have in Spain. And it has been frustrating. Obviously that I'm very, very in tune with who I am culturally. I'm not one of these people that's just like, I can adapt to wherever I am. And like, yes, I don't see color and all these, I'm not, I'm not that person at all. I am a black Caribbean woman and that is fundamentally who I am and the makeup of my person. And I'm proud of that. And I rep that in every possible way. Me getting older and really thinking about, is this where I want to settle, includes implications of what about access to my culture? What about access to my people? What if I have kids? What about their access to my culture? How is that gonna affect them? So now I need to figure out a way to marry those two in a cohesive way. What I've learned from this is that I don't have enough of a community here. I need to start making choices. I st I've started to gain a little community here. I, I joined a chat of black women in Barcelona and uh, made a few connections and that has definitely been helpful, but I'm in the beginning stages of that. Either I need to move on or I need to carve out and cultivate this community here for myself and be active in it and see what can come from that. Because it's become very, very clear to me that this is also something that I need for my wellness. Because these past few weeks have been very frustrating, very tiring, very upsetting. And you need people around you who can understand those feelings, talk you through those feelings and join you in those feelings. Thank you so much, Chloe. I really enjoyed chatting with you. If you want to keep up with Chloe, you can via social media. My Instagram handle is Brown. That's I-N-I-G-O Brown. I'm not huge on Twitter. I still haven't uh, grappled with Twitter yet. Nothing to give you there. But I do actually have a page that I'm cultivating at the moment, which is just basically about black visibility in fashion, which is called Mod in Color. And that's la mode, which is the French word for fashion. It's Mod in Color, M-O-D-E in color, color spelled in the British way, not the US way, with a U. And yeah, you can find all my professional loves on that page, my personal loves on my personal page. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoy and love this podcast, please support this podcast. Support this Black woman ran podcast, this Black woman owned business and support the podcast today. 
You can become a Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com slash Flourish Foreign. You can cash up the podcast at dollar sign Flourish Foreign. You can purchase an item that is needed for the upgrade of the production of the podcast via Amazon Wishlist, which you can find on the support page, www.flourishintheforeign.com slash support, or in the bios of all the social media channels that Flourish and Foreign has. You can place an ad or sponsor an entire episode of Flourish and Foreign. Just go to the contact page on the website and shoot me a line and we can work that out. Definitely follow the podcast across all social media channels. That is YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you're not caught up on the Instagram lives that I've been doing with the past podcast guests, you definitely want to do it. We have such great conversations on Instagram. It is actually quite different than the podcast because on Instagram, we're really kiki. So be sure that you are checking those out. And of course, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast, that you're sharing the podcast and you're leaving a review for the podcast. If you're interested in leveraging your talent and your expertise into a viable and sustainable online business that will leave you professionally fulfilled, financially abundant while you pursue a thriving life abroad, get at me. I am a business strategist and I've been so for the past eight or nine years. And I help black women and women of color take their skills and package it into businesses that really help them be professionally well and financially well and gives them a solid foundation in which to build an amazing life abroad. If you are ready to do that, I have a 12-week sprint that is just an incredible process. It's something that I use to launch this podcast and many other projects for my clients, and it's just a proven method to get things done. If you're interested in learning more or chatting with me about it, definitely go to my website, www.christinejobe.com, and we can chat. Also, if you are interested in launching your own podcast, I highly suggest joining the WOC Insiders Podcasters membership. It is a fantastic membership. However, the membership is closing its doors December 15th, and it will not reopen until Q2 of 2021. So if you're wanting to launch a podcast in the new year, you want to make sure you're in the membership now. It is a fantastic membership. It really does help you to launch your podcast, to monetize your podcast, and to be able to flip the podcast into other streams of income. So if you're interested in that, please be sure to go ahead and join the membership. And of course, thank you so much to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. Zachary is such an amazing artist. So if you're looking for music for your next project, definitely hit him up. All of his information will be in the show notes. All right. I hope you all have enjoyed this week's episode, and I hope that you have all found a way to support this podcast today. See you next week. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I distinctly remember saying, I can't hear God anymore. 
which at the time sort of seemed weird for me to be able to say. But when you live in, in a rural village where the food is very pure and you're living a very clean existence and then you get plopped back into the pollution of the United States and listening to the news and living in a place where people are very fearful and you gotta get put back into an environment where you're working in a cubicle and you don't get a lot of sun. I had fallen into a uh, depression. 